This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. moment that uh, I had the ability to run as a little child, uh, I believe that there were always a pair of soccer cleats around. Uh, I was kicking the soccer ball like uh, nearly as far back as I can remember. I, I played in elementary school like a lot of little kids and then I went up to middle school and then went on to high school and then went on to play in college. But, you know, like a lot of things, um, when I was playing at that level, it became less about playing and more about competition, more about winning, really. And for me, even though I played at a Christian college, a Christian university, if I had to be a dirty player, (laughs) I was a dirty player. Um, I was a scrappy midfielder, outside right wing to be exact. And what that means is that I ran. I ran a lot a whole lot. Besides running, right, one of my jobs was to spread the field out. Uh, and the, when I was out on the, near the sideline, my teammates would pass it to me, widen the field, and then I'd try to get it back into them. And sometimes to make that happen, I had to play dirty, or at least I felt like I had to play dirty. And you know what? I learned how to like grab my competitor's jerseys or shorts without getting caught by the refs. Um, and I learned that in a desperate, like a really desperate situation, you could accidentally step on other people's feet, right? Accidentally to get out of this kind of jam. Um, if I was dribbling down the sideline and someone was coming from behind to try to take the ball, I learned that I could, while I was running, just hit them where it counts if I needed to uh, without getting caught, right? And so I learned as a shorter soccer player the dirty tricks of the trade for protecting myself and for blocking interference, and I was good. Uh, I was good at playing dirty. I was even named an all-region player one year. The refs didn't see the dirty. That's how that happened. So, And in some ways, my success as a good player was sometimes dirty. And I think that's a good analogy in, way, in a way for Jonah, uh, who we've been reading about the last few weeks. Before he boarded the ship back in chapter 1, he was considered by some people in the area to be a good prophet of God. I mean, if there had been one, he might have even made the all-regional prophet team, right? Based, even though he was a dirty prophet. But based on this story so far that we've heard, the story of his flight from God, his fear of being shamed by the other prophets because God wanted him to preach mercy to pagans rather than Israelites, uh, his fear for his own life and other, other numerous fears, he was dirty too. He was dirty. Jonah knew the game well. The prophet, he'd been in the game a long time, I presume. He learned how to run, right? He learned how to run and get to a point where when he sensed God running up alongside him or from behind him, he thought he could play dirty and get God to back off. He learned the moves and tricks that would protect him while also blocking unwanted interference 
again, even from God. He'd played his whole life and knew the clean tricks from the dirty tricks he had his go-to trademark moves. And if God got too close for his comfort, perhaps he thought he could hit God where it counts or where it hurts. The story where we pick up today resumes in Jonah 3.1. And just as we've been doing uh, in the previous two weeks, we're allowing the story of Jonah to come into direct conversation with our story. Let me grab this. And... Um, we, we've been talking about our church's vision for the next year and a half. And so the, the board has come up with these four core values or pillars, right? Um, deep study and deep prayer and deep service and deep community. And so today we're on the third of these, which is deep service. And so the question is, how does Jonah 3.1 to 4.1, when read in conjunction with this value of deep service, shed light on what God wants? Because shouldn't, what God wants also be what we want. Well, the reality is, is that oftentimes we get in the way. We, we don't do what he wants us to do because we want to protect ourselves. We protect our wants. We block or at least try to block God. And worst of all, we do it sometimes the way that I played soccer. We play dirty against God. Have you ever played dirty against God? Hmm? Ever done that? Last week, we saw Jonah using Scripture to play dirty against God. He was twisting the Psalms to justify his disobedience. Our culture has mastered that. All but mastered that. has. We could bring, we could bring pastors in from anywhere. We could fly a pastor in or bring pastors in from anywhere to stand up here on any given Sunday morning and justify whatever sin we wanted them to justify. We could do that today. We also saw Jonah playing dirty with prayer. He used it, again, to self-justify. We've all done this sort of thing, haven't we? We've bartered with God, tried to cut deals with God, we sin now knowing that we can pray later for forgiveness and so on. That's playing dirty. That's playing dirty. It's hitting God where it counts in his heart. <laughs> we rarely tell ourselves that we're playing dirty, but we do it way more frequently than we realize. We do the same thing with church, don't we? We use it to play dirty. We can be part of gossip networks in church. We can whine about this and complain about this. We can go to people and start planting seeds of doubt and so on. We use the holiest things that God has given us to sometimes play dirty. Scripture, we twist it. Prayer, we twist it. Church, we twist it and so on. People use the notion of calling to do this as well. Oh, I'm called to do this. I'm called to tell you this. And you should feel obliged to comply. We take these like pearls that God has given us and we treat them like scraps that we'd, we'd feed the pigs. Jonah did this. He was just as good as it gets. <laughs> or he was just as good at it as you and me. He knew how to play dirty. And Jonah, sometimes like you and me, was part of the reason that the world looks the way that it does. That God, because God didn't get what he wanted from Jonah. He got in the way. And we get in the way. Our dirty playing mucks up the whole thing. 
It slows it down. Sometimes people will say things like, how could you believe in a God like the God of Christianity when the world is the way that it is? The response, I think, is kind of easy. The world isn't the way that it is because of God. The world's the way that it is because of you and me. (laughs) Sometimes we really suck, right? Our disobedience and selfishness, that's why the world looks this way. Our playing dirty, that's why it looks this way. Our taking the holy things that have been entrusted to us and using them for unholy ends, that's why it looks this way. And we can't blame this on God. We point a finger at Him, and as you know, three fingers pointing right back at us. We can't blame this on God. So if we want to see change, then... It starts with deep study and deep prayer. It starts with us. Because the logical outworking of deep study and deep prayer will be deep service. Internally and externally. And the world will begin to look more as it ought. As God desires it to be. The Jonah's like you and Jonah's like me. Often we're not about deep service, but deep swervice. Right? <laughs> That would be a good word of the week. God wants something from us and we just swerve right around it. Pass it. Deep swervice. It's not deep service, but deep selfishness. And I want you to keep that in mind as we turn to the text now. We begin at Jonah. Let's go back one verse. It says this. This is the first verse. And there was the word of Adonai for Jonah a second time saying. Chapter 3, verse. This reads exactly like the start of the whole story. Chapter 1, verse 1. The only difference in this verse is the words second time. right? Now, I could go on about how God offers a second chance and God offers a second shot. And that's true. God does. And you know, preachers preachers love to focus on this. God is the God of second chances. If you ever watch the VeggieTales version of Jonah, they have a song about God is the God of second chances. And they go on and on about that. True, God is the God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth and so on. But I got to be honest, it kind of bothers me. Kind of bothers me. Not that that's true, but that preachers are so quick to jump to that. Because they rarely, it seems, if ever, make the point that precedes that. That it's sad, isn't it, that God has to offer a second chance. (laughs) It's our disobedience that brings about the need for a second chance, isn't it? And so what I'm saying is we're so keen to rush to the bit about God giving second chances so that we don't have to stop and own up to the fact that he wouldn't have to be the God of second chances if we did what was right the first time. Wouldn't it be nice if we could simply talk about the God of first chances? (laughs) He tells us to do something the first time and we do it. Uh, no grumbling, no complaining. First time we do it. I mean, we, don't get me wrong. There's good news in the fact that God gives more than one chance, but there's also sadness in the fact that we fail so often that we honestly can't call God the God of first chances. What if, what if deep service is just that? About striving to follow or striving to allow God to be the God of first chances, right? What if, what if we didn't get in God's way? What if we did what we were supposed to do? What if when the word of the Lord came to us, we were, were so on it that we just did it right the first time? 
Have you ever noticed, by the way, or thought about the fact that Scripture, Scripture never, ever tells us how people hear a word from God? Like, have you ever thought about that? It never gives a formula for how to hear God or a model for how to hear God. Scripture never tells us how people hear God. It just takes it for granted that they do. Even screwed up people like Jonah and Abraham and you and me. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Scripture just makes it seem, oh, it's just natural that people hear God all the time. And so many people I know struggle with that whole concept. They're confused by it, mystified by that concept. They hear God so rarely that even if someone else seems to hear God, they're like suspicious of it, maybe jealous about it. Or if they do hear God, then what happens often? They doubt it. And they, they think it was just their own mind playing tricks on them. Right? This modern, con- modern concept of the inner voice like causes doubt within. But, but Scripture is just presuming that just like sheep know their shepherd's voice, God's people know his. And he speaks all the time and in many ways. God's speaking through Scripture and prayer. He speaks in prayer and in circumstances. He speaks through the church and sermons and nature and discernment and maturity and self-awareness and other awareness and things and emotions and music and food and books and animals and so on. He's speaking all the time. There's no shortage of ways that God speaks if we're only willing to be aware and notice. It should be natural. Really, I think the large part of a pastor's job, like what a pastor's supposed to do, is just to help people notice that, right? Uh, I stand up here week after week after week, and essentially I'm just saying, hey, look, look, here's God. Hey, oh, look, there's God. Listen, God's over there. That's essentially what I'm just doing up here every Sunday. Look, here's God, right? And, you know, when I feel, when I feel distant from God, or like when I feel off, uh, or down, and I, I, I'm in this place where I can't seem to hear God or see God, sometimes what I do, I start texting you guys. I start emailing you guys. I start calling you guys, and I'm asking prayer, you know, for prayer. Help me notice where God's at. And you folks are like, oh, pastor, here he is. There he is. Did you forget about this? Uh, and, and so on. And you remind me that God hasn't ceased speaking. I just get in my own way sometimes and, and put up these blockers and y'all help me get past them. And I'm here trying to help y'all do the same thing. Right? By the way, I'm in this season lately where I'm learning that emotions aren't the enemy. Oh, I wish I had learned this a long time ago. One of my professors uh, in seminary, he was a person who was largely numbed to any sorts of emotions or feelings. And he always made much of the fact that emotions aren't really trustworthy or good barometers for us because they fluctuate and change so quickly sometimes. But in the season of my life right now, I'm learning that that's not necessarily true. I'm in this place where God's teaching me to pay close attention to all my emotions because my emotions, God's teaching me, are signals to pray. Right. So I'd encourage you to do the same, that regardless of whatever emotion it is that you're feeling or experience at any given time, in any given circumstance, just pay attention to, to it and let it be a signal to you to pray. Uh, let, let's proceed. The next verse says, uh, get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out to her 
the calling that I've been speaking to you. And you'll recognize, right, the same threefold call here that we saw in chapter one, the three imperatives, get up, go, call out. And you notice that God has been speaking to Jonah all along. God is always speaking, as I was saying, ceaseless prayer. Do you know that the, the bits in the New Testament about pray without ceasing? Well, how do we do that, right? Actually, it isn't you and me doing it, right? The idea, as the New Testament teaches, the Spirit within us is always praying and interceding for us. It's just upon us. It's our job to be aware of it, to be tuned into it. That's what ceaseless praying is, constantly noticing how the Spirit is praying within us. It doesn't have anything to do with our initiating the prayer. Before I go on, let me offer just a, a thought about Nineveh here. Um, it says that it's a great city. And that's kind of interesting. It's not referring to the wonderfulness of the city, but its size. Uh, it could just as well be translated large city. And by the way, uh, if you're wondering, uh, many scholars identify ancient Nineveh with modern-day Mosul in Iraq. You've probably heard of that. But in Nineveh, there were a lot of goddesses and gods. There were a lot of deities. And one was a goddess, wait for it, named Nina. <laughs> and guess what Nina was the goddess of? Any guesses? Fish. <laughs> so, um, and so it's a nice play going on here. There was another god that was very prominent in Nineveh too. His name was Dagon which is another play on words because the Hebrew word for fish is dog, right? And so you have all these cultural elements coming in and affecting the story, word play and culture play, context play going on. Um, but the story is really suggesting, hey, it's not those deities that are in charge. It's the God of the Hebrews who's in charge. We're going to continue reading. So Jonah did get up and he went to Nineveh according to the word of Adonai. Nineveh, again, was a great city to God a three days walk. And it seems that Jonah finally edges toward obedience. Finally, even if he does it begrudgingly. The way the story reads, it's like a calloused obedience. Like when you tell a child to do something and they do it with a crap attitude, right? Uh, you all know that they pout while they're doing it. They'll sour the whole time they're doing it. Jonah, he's this pouting, reluctant, calloused prophet. He'll do it. Uh, he'll do it. But he's probably going to do it his way, which involves some playing dirty and having a crap attitude. Let me ask, have you ever surprised yourself? Like, have you ever said, said something and then immediately think, oh, did that just come out of my mouth? Like, did I really just say that? Or, or you ever do something and you think, oh, I, I did not mean it. I take it back. I didn't mean to do that. Totally. That wasn't me. Like, that, that was a different me. That wasn't me. I don't know who that was, but that wasn't me. Have you ever experienced something like this? Uh, where you, you've turned into a stranger, and for a moment, you, you don't, or you can't, like, recognize yourself? You ever experienced this? Or perhaps uh, you, you feel like you have a stranger's living inside you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that wasn't me that did that. I don't do that kind of thing. I don't say that kind of thing. I don't know what was up, but that, that wasn't me. You know, sometimes when we act on impulse, we notice it the most. Because when we're acting on, uh, impulsively, there's a part of our brain, right, that just shuts down or is blocked. We get rock brain. 
Researchers refer to this as the hot-cold empathy gap. Sorry about the spacing there. I don't know what happened. The hot-cold empathy gap. Um, and the idea is this, that emotions not only affect us, but also transform us. Now, sometimes we're different people during different emotions. When we're in like a cold state, a cool state, experiencing something, we're typically like logically, logical and deliberate. But when we're in a hot state, we're typically being controlled by that intense emotion, lust or desire, or anger. And here's the crazy thing about it. Researchers have found that when we're in a cold, logical state, it's nearly impossible for us to remember exactly or precisely what feeling we were having during a hot state. It's not, it's not possible because some kind of block exists. And as a result, we often lack the ability to have empathy for ourselves that is, we lack empathy or even the ability to have empathy for ourselves when we're, we were in a different emotional or physiological state. Again, we see when we're aroused or angry, when we're in a hot state, a state of anger, for example, we forget who we are in that cold state. We turn into different people. And when we get back into the cold state, it's nearly impossible for us to retrieve exactly what was going on in that hot state. If we're in a cool state and somebody asks, uh, is, is it a big deal if somebody cuts you off? When you're in a cool state? No, we, we can answer that logic. No, no, it's not really. Is it the end of the world? No, it's not the end of the world. But when we're in a hot state, we can say and do and think things not even imaginable when we were in a cool state. That's why basic training in the military is the way it is, or training in the police force. They know that their personnel may be put in hot states, high emotional situations, and they know about the hot-cold empathy gap. They know that emotions can take over in intense situations. So they repeatedly put soldiers and officers in these hot states to stifle impulses. And they hope that this repeated training will diminish like impulsive actions in a future potential hot state. They call it stress inoculation. They want to teach soldiers how to be and live in a hot state moment and remain as though they're in a cold state to act like their cold state selves in hot state moments. And we've all experienced this in school growing up. That's why we do fire drills with all the students. So when that goes off, the kids aren't just running around berserk, right? Tsunami sirens and now bomb drills and nowadays active shooter drills. All this so that if the time ever comes in that hot state moment, people remain their cool selves. They tried to teach this in driving school, I guess. Uh, I'm often, I'm often like Dr. Jekyll, right? When I hop into the car or the truck, cool state, Michael, right? But the minute someone does something that I really don't like, like cuts me off, then I turn into Hyde. Hot state Hyde. Sinister. Sinister minister, right? I can play dirty too, right? I can ride a bumper like nobody, right? Uh, I can, I know how to box you in on the interstate so you can't switch lanes. I know how to make you miss your ramp, right? Um, <laughs> I know how to do some hard brake checking. I can do it. Um, don't screw with me on the road, is what I'm saying. And Hyde, right, he completely, like, blocks the Jekyll side of me. And afterwards, I'm like, did it again. Right? I just called that person an idiot, which is very frequent. I just called that person an idiot, 
in front of the kids. They're laughing up here. Um, I should have stayed calm. I should have kept my mouth shut. I should have just let it go. I should have this. I, I should have that. And I'm driving along, shooting all over myself, right? I, I'm sitting there in the driver's seat with should all over me, right? Can you relate? Can you relate to this? You ever should yourself? Mm, everybody's, yeah, mm, mm. Should have taken this chance. I should have gone here. I should have said this. I should have done that. I should have been different. Uh, I should have been me. I should have showed patience. I should have tried harder. I should have been faithful. I should have been more diligent. I should have kept my promise. I should have told the truth. And before you know it, you're just covered in should. Should everywhere. Every time you take a step, should again. Right? Uh, Jonah probably could have related. Covered in should, this guy. The story is a should show. I should have obeyed, he's thinking, right? I should have gone the first time and not run. I should not have run. I should have stayed awake on the ship. I should have repented. I should have listened to God. I should have been genuine in my prayer. I should have been less self-righteous. A real should show. Can you relate? Your life ever been a should show, right? Not just me and Jonah, right? Okay. At some point, you got to wipe the should off yourself. Wipe the should off yourself. Do what's right the first time. God of first chances. Don't make him the God of second chances. Okay, one amen. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, not alone. Not alone. Uh, but Jonah began to enter the city for a one day's walk, and he called out and said, Another 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. And so Jonah did what God wanted. Kinda. Kinda. This seems half aspirational, right? Halfway aspires to do it. He finally gets to Nineveh and what's he do? What's he do? He gives a five word sermon. Pretty doom and gloom. Bare minimum sermon. Five words. He he finally kinda does what God wants him to do. He got up. He went where he was supposed to go. He called out to the Ninevites. He fulfilled the three imperatives. It's not as robust as we'd like to see, but the very least, he's quit running. I was thinking about that a lot this week, uh, how he quit. And I realized sometimes quitting can be good. It was for Jonah. He quit running. It's been so ingrained in us that quitting is a bad thing. Don't be a quitter. But sometimes quitting is winning, isn't it? Quitting smoking, quitting the bottle, quitting immorality, quitting running, quit shooting on ourselves. There's a positive side to quitting sometimes. And sometimes we need to give our, ourselves the chance to quit someone. Sometimes we need to give ourselves the chance to quit something, quit somewhere. In fact... Here's what I want to suggest since we're thinking about deep service, serving or mission. There may be things where we need to give ourselves permission to quit in order to serve God more faithfully. Service, service begins with connecting with God, experiencing God. That's where it starts. And as we grow in our experiences of God or grow spiritually, then service just naturally follows. We become more ministry-minded, more mission-minded. 
The people of Nineveh believed God and they called a fast and dressed in sackcloth from their great ones to their least ones. And so there it is. At least part of what Jonah feared all along happens. They turn to God. The people he didn't want to turn to God turn to God. The, the Ninevites show up to the Israelites. The other prophets, they were tasked with calling out to the Israelites and calling them to repent and to turn to God. And Israel repeatedly refused. The Ninevites, however, pagans, Gentiles, listened and turned to God. And it kind of puts the Israelites and their prophets, including Jonah, to shame. They probably felt indicted. And, and while we're here, let me just point out that, that change, catch this, I love this about the day, change started in the neighborhoods. It started at the street level with normal people, people like you and like me. And that also means it didn't start in political rooms or with political figures. It didn't start with the king. The king, actually, as we read in the next verse, follows suit. He follows the people, which is kind of how it should be. Change started in Nineveh with regular people, and it spread. And the Ninevites were evidently ready for a change. And I'll bet you can relate, can't you? You ready for a change? Anybody ready for a change? Ready for America to get out of its hot state and just get into a cool state? Calm, logical, chill. Right? Anybody been worn down by the media in the last year and a half, two years, three years? All the angst that's been created? Ready for some change? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it starts with you and me. Hmm? In our heart minds, right? A at the ends of our driveways. Starts here <laughs> and here, this church. Not in government offices. That's what happened in Jonah's case. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, he removed his robe from upon him, covered up in sackcloth, and sat among the ashes. So from neighborhoods to the king, bottom up. A wonderful sight, a beautiful sight. This king was so moved that he stepped off his throne. No more power tripping. Seems like the proper humble response to the people. And if that's not enough, he removed his royal robe. He joined his fellow people. <laughs> and with them, it essentially said, death to how it used to be. That's what the sackcloth and ashes represent, death, dying. This act of, of ruling from a place of violence and a, from a place of power and corruption. The king is saying, death to it. Death to the old way. Death to how it used to be. You know the next question, don't you? <laughs> Anything in your life you need to say death to? Death to the old way, I quit it. Why not quit it right now? Put it to death, here and now. Look at what the king says and does. He cried, he had it, cried out and spoken in Nineveh, according to the tastes of the king and his great ones, person, cattle, herd, flock, they shall not taste anything. They're not eaten. They shall not be fed nor drink water. Let them be covered with sackcloth, even the animals, person and cattle, and let them call out to God with all their might. Let each turn back from his evil path and from the violence that's in their hands. Who knows? God may turn back and relent. Indeed, turn back from the burning of his anger. 
and we may not be lost. Now the king, like most politicians, participates in government overreach. (laughs) He goes on television, or at least the ancient equivalent of it, before the masses of the city, and he puts forth a new city mandate. New restrictions on the people here. Restrictions on the people and what they can eat. The animals and their food. What they can wear. What they can do. Hmm. It's a little close to home. Here's the big difference. He tells everyone to call out to God, to turn from evil, and to turn from violence. For if they do, God may relent and turn from his anger. The prayer is for God to come in a cool state. (laughs) But that image of everyone turning to God's, that's something we can only dream of. A city changing and turning. It seems impossible today, doesn't it? Very difficult to imagine in a way. Even just a small island, just pockets of this island, right? Turning to God. But friends, I'll say it again. It starts with you and me in our neighborhoods. Period. And you know, in this small congregation, God is legit moving. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of how much he is moving, but as a pastor, I'm talking to a bunch of you folks, and I know how he's moving. I was talking to Lynn a couple weeks ago, and as part of her new job, just to call people and exchange information and whatnot. Lynn, I'm telling the story. And so she's on the phone a couple weeks ago, and the guy, a business guy on the other end of the phone asks her, are you a pastor? Now, y'all know Lynn. (laughs) Y'all know Lynn can come off with some loud and strong vibes, right? But this dude on a business call is asking her if she's a pastor. I told her to start praying about becoming a pastor. She's praying about it. I hope she becomes a pastor. Lydia went to camp on the Big Island several weeks ago, had some profound experiences of God, like profound, like never before. And she shared that God gave her a vision to be a missionary. In the mission field right now, the image of her school was given to her. Chris Isari's boss, he doesn't even go here to the bridge, but the last few months, he's donated several checks into the thousands because he believes what's being preached and taught here and what God's doing here. A city bus driver handed Carlton a check for thousands of dollars a few months back. Sean over here, he's my neighbor. He's feeling a strong call into ministry. And Isaiah is sensing a, a leading into ministry. And our board, Sharon and Sarah and Lynn and Sonny and Lloyd and Chris, is sensing God leading us further with more opportunities to, to serve our community. Deeper study into deeper prayer, to deeper service and community. God is moving all around this place in this congregation. I want to share more of those stories. And I want you to tell me when you have those experiences so I can share them. Look at, look at how God responds in this story. God saw what they did. That they turned back from their evil path and God relented from the evil that he had spoken of doing to them and didn't do it. It reminds me of the Noah story. You remember, right? That, that God didn't put the rainbow up in the sky as a reminder to us. That's a common misconception. God put the rainbow up after the flood as a reminder to himself, a note to self. It was essentially hanging up, him hanging up his bow 
The ancient gods had weapons. He hangs his bow up into the sky as a reminder of himself. When humans tick me off and I'm getting ready to act, I see the rainbow and it reminds me I'll never be violent with them again. Perhaps God sees a rainbow here in this case with this city. Who knows? But what's incredible too is that God sees them turn back from their evil path. And it's just a beautiful sight. They abandon their path of violence or path of evil and they turn back from it and they turn to God's path. And it brings us to our bottom line that deep service is rooted in self-abandon. I came across a statement this week that I wanted to share with you. Listen to this. It says, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary, is primary a spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Oh, I love that. We don't need more people here. I've realized if I play that game as a pastor, I'll just go crazy. Why aren't the numbers up? Why aren't the, why aren't the numbers? I'll go crazy, right? We don't need more people. We need more deep people. If more people come, great. If not, okay. Let's roll with what we have. God will keep moving. What we're after is deep people. A deep church. One writer put it this way. The struggle of any age for Christian pastors and teachers is to encourage people to become deeper people, especially in response to times of emotional turmoil. That is in hot states. It's tough to get people to dive deep when they're in a hot state. Jonah was definitely in a hot state. At the start of the story, he fled, the he fled to the ship, right, trying to abandon God in a hot state. But in our hot states or any state, we don't abandon God. We are called to abandon ourselves for God. That's the entire point of life, isn't it? Abandoning self for God. Abandoning my will to do God's will. What is God's will? But I've said this numerous times before. Here's God's will, if you just want it in a nutshell. God's will. It's the same for you as it is for me, as it is for everybody. Through holy living to draw all people to Christ. That's it. It's that simple. Period. You, you, you see, we want our, our service to God here at the bridge to be about synergy. is working in partnership with God. There was this Christian thinker named Hannah Whittall Smith. She once put it this way. She said, you've trusted God in a few things and he has not failed you. Trust him now for everything and see if he doesn't do for you exceedingly abundantly above all that you could have ever asked or even thought, not according to your power or capacity, but according to his own mighty power, working in you all the good pleasure of his most blessed will. Isn't that great? Self, abandon, that's where deep service begins. Deep service is rooted in self-abandon. And look at this, look how quickly Jonah's self-abandon dissipates. It's short-lived. Maybe it can't even be called self-abandon at all. Look at the next verse. But this was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it inflamed him. Jonah's angry, he's embarrassed. The Assyrians, in his mind, don't deserve God's mercy and forgiveness. Those awful Ninevites... And so back to playing dirty it is for Jonah. Back to getting in God's way, blocking God's plan, and making a mess of everything. See, friends, our, our hearts need to break for what breaks God's heart. Jonah's problem is that he didn't want that. 
And the same could be said for Christians all over today. But our hearts can only break for what breaks God's when we embrace self-abandon, period. As I just mulled this over and over this week, I was reminded of this scene from The Great Divorce. It's a, a book by C.S. Lewis. And this book, the, the Great Divorce, I highly encourage. If you need something to read, go read it. It's an incredible book. This book, it's about this dream or this vision that wonders what the afterlife will be like. And so in exploring this concept of the afterlife, we're taken onto a bus, like a school bus, or just a bus where people ride into what we often call heaven, and then they ride into what we often call hell. And when there's this one scene that's on the heaven side of things, or they call it the heaven country side of things, where people, they step off the bus, and they see the people who are there. And there's this particular character. The scene begins, she, she sees someone, or she thinks she sees someone that she knows. And she, she turns to the, the, the driver and she says, is that, is that? And, and the guide responds, no, not, not at all. It's someone you, you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith and she lived at Golders Green. And the writer, uh, I'm sorry, and um, the writer says, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. And the guide replies, Aye, she's one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this heaven country or this country and, and fame on earth are quite different things. And the writer says, And who, who are all these young men and women on each side? The guide replies, They're her sons and daughters. And this is the bit of a conversation that's just incredible. The writer says, oh, she must have had a very large family, sir. And the guide replies, every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now, the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows into them. And my hope is that we, you, know, you and me, the bridge, that we can live into that. That our deep service rooted in self-abandon ultimately just looks like the life of Christ in us, flowing to those around us, including the animals, including the creation around us. So that at the end of the day, any who look at this congregation can say, wow, they had a large family, sir. So, let's wipe the should off ourselves get to it. Amen? Amen. Stand up. Let me bless you today. If you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you 
realize you are part of a large family. May you go forth in self-abandonment. That you may serve our brother Christ. And as you get started, like you should on yourself. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.